0: Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson. and You're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. The show of hands. How many of you wear or have ever worn a cross? Say a necklace or a shirt. Yeah. You know. Worn a cross. Have you ever worn a cross of any kind, right? All right. Show of hands. How many of you ever hung a cross on your wall? We used to have a whole wall devoted to crosses. How many of you have ever put a cross on your car? Like a bumper sticker. Oh, you guys know better than that. <laughs> okay, we need to we need to talk about our driving habits, I think. That's what the, that's what that reveals. Right. So. We're all extremely familiar with the cross as a personal accessory, right? As home decor, as bumper stickers. Apparently not in this room, but I've seen them. They're out there. They're people that have crosses on their car, maybe the little fish, you know. The cross is all over the place, right? It's ubiquitous. It's become just sort of a commonplace thing in our culture. But to Christians, of course, we know that there's more to it than that. So we wear a cross, or we hang a cross on our wall, or we stick a cross on our car, uh, as a way, I think, of, of celebrating, as a way of honoring uh, God for what he did for us at the cross. But if you think about it, in a way, it's super weird to wear a cross. It's super weird to celebrate the cross, really, at all, because it's an instrument of torture, and humiliation, and death, right? We know that. We've read the stories about Jesus. We've seen probably some of the movies that depict it happening. It's not a pretty thing. It is a low and horrible image, something like an electric chair, but probably worse than that, right? The cultural equivalent. This is the instrument of executing a criminal. That is what a cross represented. So it's a long way to see it hanging around people's necks in gold and you know adorning walls and ornate you know flowers and kind of pretty scenes like that. But as Christians we also know that on the cross Jesus Christ paid for our sins and purchased our salvation. And so while it is a horrific emblem of hatred and death in itself yet has become for us an emblem of love and hope. We sing about it. We just sang several songs about it. We read books about it. We still adorn our homes and our bodies and our cars with it, right? I just wore a shirt yesterday that had a cross in it. But the truth is, even when we do that knowingly, even when we have some inkling of or some intention of, honoring God or remembering the gospel in our use of the cross, we still have only the faintest idea either of the humiliation of the cross on the one hand or of the glory of the cross on the other. We have only the faintest idea. You see, we can scarcely imagine the depth Of humiliation and agony to which our Savior lowered himself there. We're so used to it. He died on the cross. We can barely imagine how low and how horrible that was. And we can barely fathom the infinite heights of beauty and power and glory that the cross reveals to us, namely the glory of God Himself. Our verses, the few verses we're going to look at today in John chapter 13 are all about this strange paradox, this juxtaposing of the humiliation of the cross and the glory of the cross. So I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 13. And in verses 31 to 35, we will see the cross of Jesus as something that reveals to us the glory of God and that calls us to a way of living, indeed, a way of loving, that makes even the most ornate and beautiful cross on the wall look meager by comparison. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you're in John 13, follow along. As I read verses 31 to 35, just briefly by way of context, Jesus is with His disciples on the night before His crucifixion. He has washed their feet, taking on the form and role of a slave, and not even a Jewish slave, but a Gentile slave. So low was the task of washing another's feet in this culture. He has lowered Himself and washed the feet of the disciples as a picture of the cleansing that he would accomplish through the cross. And then he's just made known, at least to a couple of the guys in the room, probably John and Peter might be the only ones who really understand by the time Judas leaves, he's made known that someone is going to betray him, and he's pointed out to John and Peter that Judas is the one who will do it. And then at the end of those verses that we looked at last week, he said, "'What you do, do quickly.'" And immediately he went out, and it was night. So now Judas has left the room, the events have been set in motion that will, in less than a day's time, lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. So read with me verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're just going to take these few verses today. And try to get our eye on and our hearts around the glory of God in the cross. And this new way of living that His cross calls us to. So the first thing to say from these verses is that the cross shows us the glory of God. The cross shows us. The glory of God. If you remember, this chapter started, this is kind of the second half of John's gospel, so the end of 12 was really kind of a a bookmark, right? He told the story of Jesus and all these signs, these seven miraculous signs that he had performed to point to his identity, so those chapters are often called the book of signs for that reason. Chapter 13 begins what people call the book of glory, because we're going to see in it the cross and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus himself highlights the glory of God that we see there. So chapter 13, verse 1 began with this sort of summary, this sort of introduction. It said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The cross looms over this entire scene and all of the words of Jesus in these few chapters and the way that the narrative begins to unfold. He loved them to the end. His hour had finally come. This is the scene, this is the setting of all of these verses and truths that unfold. So if you read the foot-washing scene, or you read Jesus talking about loving one another, or you read anything that comes in these few chapters without the cross in your view, you'll miss the point of what John is saying. So let's be sure that the cross colors how we understand these verses. In verse 31 that began these verses, Jesus said this, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now that Judas has gone. Now that the one among the twelve who was influenced by the devil to betray the Son of Man and hand him over to his enemies, now that the, the, the wheels are turning, now that the plot, so to speak, to crucify Jesus is set in motion. Now is the Son of Man glorified. The cross is on Jesus' mind. It's just around the corner. There's no turning back. It's sort of like, here we go. Now is the Son of Man glorified. So remember that the cross is in view here. So then we get all this talk about the glorifying of God. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. God, that is God the Father, is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, then God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorified at once. You get kind of dizzy with how many times Jesus just said glory. He's getting glorified, and the Father's getting glorified, and the Father's glorifying the Son, and the Son's being glorified in Himself, and all that glory is happening at once. That is Now, that is in the scene that is about to unfold at the cross. So there's some Father, Son, kind of Trinity uh, work going on in the glory giving and glory receiving. And we could just breeze past that and go, all right, yeah, Jesus is always talking about glory, right? He always just likes to say, I'm going to get glorified and the Father's going to get glorified and all this is for my glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of just breeze past it. Okay, the cross glorifies God. Great. Good to know. But I think we need to ask, because we need to know, how does the cross of Christ glorify God? How is, to say it slightly differently, how is the glory of God revealed in the cross? Because it's not really that popular to think that. In fact, even among some who claim the name Christian, they're moving farther and farther away from the idea of the cross being something that God planned or intended. God has been accused of divine child abuse for putting His Son forward on the cross. Of those who would see here something that needs to be explained away. We need to keep our distance. And so, we need to ask, how does the cross... This instrument of torture and humiliation and death, how does that reveal the glory of God? If you'll indulge me, I'd like to jump to another passage to help us out with that. In the book of Romans, which is just a couple of books to the right of the Gospel of John, it is Paul's longest letter as well as his most sort of high and grand and full presentation of the good news of Christ. In Romans chapter 3, Paul takes up this very question, not quite in these words, but he takes up the notion of what we see of God in the cross of Christ. I'd like to read for you verses 21 through 26 of Romans 3. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that just means revealed, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, there's a summary of the Christian gospel, right? God's righteousness is given to those who believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross. So he just sort of summarizes there. The righteousness of God now comes to us through faith in Christ for all who believe. Continuing, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, a verse you've probably heard, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Say propitiation. One, two, three. Propitiation. All right. Go put that on your bumper sticker on your wall, right? Propitiation just means a satisfaction. means what was demanded has been provided. Everything that stood as a barrier has been met and removed. So God put forward Christ, that is, on the cross as a propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. And then he's going to tell us why he put Jesus forward on the cross to shed his blood. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God sent his son Jesus to the cross to display his righteousness. Why does it show his righteousness, Paul tells us? Because in his patience he had passed over former sins. If you think about from day one in the garden, when Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, all the way up to the time, several thousand years later at least, when Jesus went to the cross, how much sin there had been committed in the world. How high the pile of man's unrighteousness had reached by the time the cross arrives. God has passed over these former sins. That is, He ain't just wiped it all out yet. He hasn't just said enough with the whole thing and destroyed every one of us. He has patiently endured this piling up of sin and unrighteousness and rebellion and hatred of God that has been happening throughout the ages. But here's the deal. Here's the dilemma that God has. He wants to save people. He wants to forgive people. He wants to justify people. That's the language that Paul uses here in Romans 3. And that means he wants to declare them clean. As though they've never committed any sin or wrongdoing or broken his law at all. He wants to forgive and to justify. But if he just goes, okay, forget about all that. What does God look like? What does that say about his righteousness? What does that say about his justice? What does that say about his character? That God just goes, it's really not that big a deal. I'm willing to just let bygones be bygones, as we might say. God puts forward Jesus as the propitiation, the satisfaction by his blood to display his righteousness. In other words, sin has got to be dealt with. Sin can't just be swept under the rug or just out of sight, out of mind, because God's holiness won't allow it. What fellowship has light with darkness? So, the first thing that we see about God in the cross is His utter righteousness. He is clean. He is Holy. He is just. He is perfect and good. And if he were just to dismiss and excuse all sin, then that is called into question. If we'd apply that same kind of standard to an earthly judge, just someone in our own kind of legal system, if a criminal stood before a judge who had just robbed a bank and he said, How do you plead? And the bank robber said, Well, I'm guilty. I did rob the bank, um, but I really needed the money, and I'm sorry, and I'll try not to do it again. If the judge said, you know what, I trust you, I believe you, I think you really are sorry, and you had a good reason for it, and let's just forget it, you're in good standing with the law now, just don't do it again. How long would that judge have his job? Not very long. Because that's not what a judge does. A judge upholds the law. And the law has consequences. The law has punishments written into it. So if God were simply to say, no big deal, then we go, God doesn't really care that much about sin. Sin must not be that much of an offense against God. His righteousness must not be all that important. Because he's willing to sort of be defamed and lay it aside just so that he can be forgiving and let us in. So the cross, before it says anything else to us, the cross first of all tells us about the depth of our sin and need. And the enormity and the essential importance to God's character of his righteousness. So the first way that the cross glorifies God is that it displays his righteousness. That's why the cross happened, Paul tells us. This was to show his righteousness. The second thing that it tells us, and this is maybe more obvious to us, is it displays his love. Because he wanted to justify us. He wanted to forgive us. He wasn't willing to say, I'm holy and righteous and you're a sinner and therefore be condemned. He made a way because he loved us. Paul, just a couple of chapters later in Romans 5, 8 says, God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Jesus Christ displays the righteousness of God. The untouchable holiness of God. Against which our sin, even the ones we would deem little sins, are an enormous and infinite offense and affront to Him. And the cross of Christ displays His love for us. While we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, He put forward Jesus to take our sin upon Himself, to bear the penalty in Himself. Praise God. Praise God. As a church, this is how we give glory to God through developing ministries, worship services, discipleship, and outreach around the cross of Jesus Christ. We've got to keep the cross of Christ front and center if God is to get any glory from what we do. We can't just be another humanitarian organization that's out there putting shoes on homeless people. Putting shoes on homeless people is a good thing. We can partner with people who do that. We can do that ourselves. But if we don't do it in the name of Christ and his cross, God doesn't get the glory that he deserves. The cross of Christ is where we see the righteousness of God and the love of God. We don't glorify God through big buildings and budgets and great bands and all that good stuff, which, praise God, we don't have any of that. We're a rented building, a small budget, no band, right? So if that's how we glorified God, we would be kind of like in pretty desperate shape. But we glorify God through the cross by keeping Jesus' death for sinners front and center in our ministry. This is why we sing about the cross so much. This is where God is glorified. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorifying one another in the cross of Christ so as a church we've got to keep that in our view but we don't just want to stop there at this collective corporate sort of thought and application let's get a little more personal let me ask you have you given thought to the seriousness of your and the depth of God's love for you revealed in the cross if you've never acknowledged your sin and brokenness, turned away from your sin in repentance and placed your trust in the cleansing from sin that comes only through the cross, today is the day. You are invited today to make that happen. To just plead with God, I am a sinner. Please forgive me through what Jesus did on the cross. Don't miss that opportunity if that's you. For all of us, we will do well to pray along with the old hymn. I don't know if you're familiar with this by Fanny Crosby. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Bring its scenes before me. Let me live from day to day with its shadow over me. Keep me near the cross. We cannot lose sight of what Jesus accomplished there because it's here that God is glorified. It's here that we see His righteousness and His love. It's here that we find our cleansing, our forgiveness, and our life. So the cross reveals to us the glory of God. Jesus tells him in verse 33... I'm only with you for a little bit longer. He calls them little children, which is a term of love and affection, endearment. Little children, yet a little while, I'm with you. And I think that the disciples must have sensed the warmth and the the affection of that term because John, who authored this gospel, when he writes his letters, we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John Toward the back of the New Testament in First John, this is what, how he addresses his readers, little children. It's the only other place in the New Testament that that address occurs. So John clearly received this, was impacted by the, the warmth and the, the, the love that he heard from his Savior in this address. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. I can only imagine how anxious this must have made his disciples who have been with him for three years, who indeed left home and job and family and everything that they knew to travel with Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going away and you can't come with me. What are we going to do? Back in John 6, Peter said that to him when Jesus asked him, so are you ready to leave? Peter said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, now the time has come for Jesus to leave them. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to rise. And after just a short time, he's going to ascend back to heaven. And they're going to be on their own, humanly speaking. He'd send the spirit, of course. But you've got to imagine the way they hear this. This is bad news. Jesus is leaving, and I can't go. Which is why Peter says just a few verses later in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And then Philip is going to ask him later in chapter 14, how, how will we know the way? And Jesus is going to give his famous answer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for a couple of weeks from now. So Jesus had told the Jews earlier, a couple of times actually, these religious leaders that were opponents of his, I'm going away and you can't follow me. He also told them in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 34, you will look for me and you won't find me. And then he told them again in uh, chapter 8, verse 21, that you will die in your sins. So these are words of judgment upon the religious establishment of the Jews that had decided that Jesus had to go, that he was a blasphemer. He doesn't include those judgments, those condemnations to his disciples here. He says, just like I told the Jews, you can't come with me. But what he tells Peter a few verses later is, you will come later. You will come with me later, but not right now. So he gives them some reassurances, even in the midst of their fears and anxiety. And then he gives them, in verse 34, a, quote, new commandment. We're going to find, as we unpack these verses over the next few minutes, that the cross calls us to humble love. The cross calls us to humble love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. First note word to draw attention to is the word commandment. This is not a suggestion. This is not an option for followers of Jesus. We are under authority. We are obligated to obey. Jesus can command us what to do. And he says, I command you. We need to come at it in that way. Okay. I need to pursue obedience. I need to take leadership and authority from Christ, excuse me, and I'm obligated to obey. And so here's this new commandment I give you, love one another. That doesn't seem innovative, does it? That doesn't seem new. In fact, I'm sure that these disciples went, actually, Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Like that's been around since the beginning of our days as a nation, Jesus himself said in Matthew 22, 37-39, he summarized the entire Old Testament by saying, love God and love your neighbor. On, On this, all the law and the prophets are summarized. So the command to love your neighbor isn't new in itself. So what is new about this? How is this command new? And I think It hangs on a phrase that comes right after those words. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Here it is. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the only thing new in this. The only thing new in the command to love neighbor is that now we know what love looks like. Because Jesus embodied it. Jesus modeled it for us. And with the immediate context of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, there's, there's certainly um, the, the, the application of humbly serve somebody else, right? Lower yourself, be willing to do something for somebody's benefit. And so I think that that meaning is certainly there. He has tangibly demonstrated humble, servant-hearted love. But with the cross in view, as it was at the beginning of this chapter, Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And as it just was when he was saying, now that the cross is about to be here, I am glorified. With the cross in view, as I have loved you, takes on a whole deeper meaning, doesn't it? And you know that John's readers, looking backward to the cross, just as we are today, when they read this, just as I have loved you, you all sort of love one another. They can't read those words without remembering. Jesus went to the cross for me. Jesus bore my sins upon the tree. The cross gives love a whole new meaning. Love your neighbor is not new. Love your neighbor as I have loved you. That changes the game. Love means. Self-sacrifice. Love means giving myself away for the good of another. Love means at my expense for your benefit. Love means laying down my rights so that you can hold on to yours. Who is Jesus asking you to love today? Who do you need to serve, bless, honor, forgive, or encourage this week to let the cross of Christ inform and empower your love for others this week? A friend, a co worker, a teacher, a brother or a sister, husband or wife? A mother or a father who might Jesus be calling us to love in this way at my expense for your benefit the last thing Jesus tells us about this love and about the effect that this love can have is that this kind of radical, humble love is a witness to the world of the power of the cross. Right? It's the love of Jesus displayed in the cross that compels us to love others. And he says in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Your love for one another will tell the world about the gospel. It is a picture of the love of Christ for his people. In the immediate context, as he's talking to his disciples here, he's kind of saying, your discipleship will no longer be obvious to people because you're following me around. Right? The people in this day knew that, for example, Peter was a disciple of Jesus because Peter was always with Jesus. That's why Peter has opportunities in just a short time to deny Jesus three times because three people at least recognize Peter as a disciple. Hey, you're one of his followers. Nope, that's not me, right? They recognize him. They know he's one of Jesus' disciples because they see him with Jesus all the time. And he's saying here at least, that's not going to be the reality anymore once I'm gone, right? I'm only with you a little while longer. And then, the only way people will know that you belong to me, that you follow me, is by your love for one another. There's a Jesus-shaped, cross-infused love that must mark the people of God, or no one will recognize them as Jesus' followers. No one will have any idea that we are for Jesus or that we represent Him in any way if our love is not marked by cross shaped self sacrifice. One another is the church. He doesn't say, The world will know you're my disciples by the way you love them, He says, By the way you love one another. Our love for other Christians, and specifically Christians who share the journey of faith in the same local fellowship. So, just to make it real practical and say, our church, our love for one another in our local church is how others will know that we're His disciples. Our love for each other within the church ought to be such that outsiders looking in go, man, the people of Imprint Community Church take such great care of each other. They pray for each other. They encourage each other. They bear each other's burdens. They are responsible for one another in a way that I've never seen. They must belong to Jesus. Now, the world doesn't necessarily have all of that language, but there's an undeniable, unmistakable connection to our Savior if we are loving each other in this way. And here's a couple of things that that means. The I love Jesus, but I hate the church mantra of so many Gen Xers and millennials today is foreign to the teaching of the New Testament and to the heart of Jesus. How are people going to know you belong to Jesus? By your love for the brothers and sisters. By your love for the church. So I love Jesus. I love following Jesus, but I'm going to do it on my own without the church weighing me down. Jesus says, no one's going to know you're my disciple because you're not loving Jesus one another if we love Jesus we will love his church because we'll care about what he cares about Jesus died for the church to purify her for himself Ephesians chapter 5 if we love Jesus we will love the church that is the people of God so here's a couple of things that this means for us as we kind of wrap up first do I love other Christians Do I love the church of Jesus Christ? Do I meaningfully invest myself in my local community of faith where I carry out the radical, humble love the cross of Christ calls me to? We each need to ask ourselves that question. Am I loving my church like Jesus loved me? Second, we've got to pay attention to what we're known for. He says... People will know you're my disciples. How? By your love for each other. What are we known for? Are we as Christians and as a church known more for what we're against or whom we're for? Are we known more for what we despise or for what we value? Are we known more for the sin that we decry or the grace that we extend? Are we known more for the intensity of our griping or for the tenderness of our encouragement? Jesus calls us to love as he has loved us. And that's the way we'll be marked as his disciples. Your love for one another. So when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we are confronted with the transcendent reality of the glory of God. His unwavering righteousness displayed against our sin and His unstoppable love demonstrated in the Savior laying down His life for us while we were His enemies. And when we consider this unending love, we hear the voice of the Savior With his new command, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. May we be moved to follow in his footsteps and to live out in our church before the watching eyes of the world, the same radical, servant-hearted, humble love that he has lavished on us. Let's pray.